If you open your Bibles to Isaiah 39, if you're using the church Bible, it can be found on page 599. Isaiah 39. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They've come from, to me from afar, from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, they've seen all that is in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I didn't show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Okay, keep your Bible open right there at Isaiah 38 and 39. All of us here this morning has a vested interest in knowing that no word, no promise that God has ever spoken will fall to the ground and be lost. Each one of us, whether we're Christians or not, have a vested interest in knowing that what God promises, God will deliver. And what is the major threat to the delivery of God's promise? in our lives in the world in which we live? Is it the forces of Islam? Is it the forces of secularism or atheism? Actually, probably it would be true to say that throughout the history of God's dealings with humanity, the biggest threat to the implementation of God's will in the world has been His own people. And nowhere is that clearer, I think, than in these two chapters to which we come this morning. Jerusalem and Judah had a celebrity leader. Hezekiah had emerged on the scene. He was the nearest figure that they could imagine to what the Messiah would look like. All his ratings are high ratings. He gets five stars for being a good king. In the early days, he'd started off his reign in a thoroughgoing reformation of worship. He had got rid of all of the high places where God was worshipped alongside the gods of the Assyrians. Cleared them all out, burned them all down, focused the worship back again at the temple where it should be, and on God alone as it should be. That was a great work. It was a thoroughgoing work. He recovered some of the basic core truths of the Jewish faith and brought them to the forefront of 
the worship of God's people. And if the book had ended at chapter 37, we would have considered the whole life of Hezekiah to have been a charmed life. God had blessed him in so many ways. By the end of chapter 37, we have Hezekiah facing down the Assyrians, taking a strong stand, turning away from all foreign alliances, trusting only in the Lord, and we have that ringing endorsement of God at the very end that He will take care of the Assyrians and that the people of Jerusalem and Judah will not have to do anything. The Assyrians were as good as dead, even then because of the promise of God. Amen. Home for lunch. That would have been a good ending, wouldn't it, today? But that isn't where it ends. Because here in chapter 38 and 39, Isaiah takes us back in time to a period, 10 or 12, maybe 13 years earlier in the life of, Jeremiah, uh, of Hezekiah. Actually, no, longer than that. I'm getting my figures messed up. 15 years, nearly 15 years, nearly 15 years before. And at that period, we find him spectacularly failing in his responsibility as a king. So chapters 38, 39 are a flashback. I think you can see that from verse 6 of 38, where he talks about the king of Assyria is still a threat. At the end of chapter 37, the king of Assyria is not a threat. If you compare it with kings and chronicles, you'll find that that is the case. And chapter 36, uh, 37 tell us about the end of the immediate threat of Assyria, whereas chapters 38 and 39 tell us how Babylon will eventually, 100 years or so later, become the major threat to the survival of Judah and Jerusalem. Well, with that in mind, let's work our way through the passage. Chapter 38, verses 1 to 8, we have the story of a severe mercy. I remind you that Hezekiah was a good king. If you look up Second Chronicles 31, not just now, but later, uh, we have an insight into the motives and intentions and impulses that drive history and drove this man, Hezekiah. Uh, so we read these words, Hezekiah did throughout all Jerusalem and Judah that which was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. And every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God, the temple, and in accordance with the law of God, the commandments, seeking his God, he did with all his heart, and he prospered. That's a great statement. If somebody could say that about you or me in our lifetime, we'd be thrilled by that. It isn't a statement of sinless perfection, but it is a statement of his covenant faithfulness to God. And I like it that God is gracious in noting His servants' work for Him. Very often, you know, when someone makes a spectacular error in their lives or they fall into sin of some kind in their lives, we define them by their failure. And so everything else they've done that has been good for God and good for the kingdom is obliterated from our memory and our mind, and we just see them through the prism of their spectacular failure. God has had to deal with lots of spectacular failures 
in his time with us. David is one of them, you remember. Simon Peter is another one. And wherever he has had to deal with failures, he is gracious enough to record their achievements as well as their, as their failures. Now we get to chapter 38, 39 rather, 38. My 38s and 30, usually I have a dummy run at the 9 o'clock service, so that's absolutely perfect for you guys here at 11. This is the imperfect version you're getting today. Chapter 38 begins with a private crisis in the life of this king, Hezekiah. He is seriously ill and at the point of death. By this stage, the Assyrian war machine has not yet penetrated even the outskirts of his kingdom. But here he is facing another enemy, the last enemy, the enemy of death that is at his door. For even kings are mortals, and even the godly will die. And we read that Isaiah the prophet in those days came to him and said, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die, and you shall not recover. Now apart from Isaiah's questionable bedside manner, he does, he does do what we often wish our medical people would do, and that is tell us when we are terminally ill so that we can get our house in order and say our goodbyes before we lose consciousness. This was not the news that Hezekiah wanted to hear, but it was the truth, and he had to face up to the truth. Though not everybody gets a word from God to tell them when they're going to die. So that kind of flagged up something in the mind of Hezekiah. He's going to die. And death, of course, he understands as, long, as well as everybody else in the Bible. Death is a judicial act of God. The wages of sin is death. But do you see the effect it has on the king? Verse 2. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. He did not turn his face to the wall petulantly or childishly or selfishly or hopelessly. He turns his face deliberately to the Lord in order that the wall in order that he might shut out every other distraction, shut out his court gathered before him. Uh, Matthew Henry thinks that particular wall was adjacent to the temple. Perhaps he is looking towards the temple. Matthew Henry suggests that, that that is a type of his looking towards Christ. The temple represents Christ. Whether Matthew Henry is right or, wrong, or not, Hezekiah turns away from every other distraction in order to pray. And he prays with tears. He prays and is moved. Listen to what it says. Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. It is okay to weep bitterly when you find out that you have a bad diagnosis. It is okay for you to cry. Now, Hezekiah was not in the position that we are in. Hezekiah did not know what the Apostle Paul knew, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Hezekiah did not know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
Hezekiah is living before the risen, reigning Lord Jesus, the Son of David and the Son of God, smashed the mystery and the darkness surrounding death and brought the light of immortality to light through the gospel. He didn't know all that, that you and I know. But nonetheless, he turns towards the Lord. He doesn't see, somehow or other, this notification of his illness and death, his illness he was aware of, that his death was near, turns him to God. Now, that suggested, I think, to him that God had not spoken his last word to him. And so he calls on God's name. And there's another reason why he turned to God, however. And it is more in accord with what we know of Hezekiah so far. He was very much aware that he was a covenantal king. That is, that he belonged to the covenant people of God and was their representative before God. And at this stage in his career, we know this from all the, the work we can do from the various manuscripts. We've got Kings and Chronicles as well as Isaiah, uh, as well as outside sources. At this point, he has no heir. He is the king, and if he dies when Isaiah says he's going to die, he is going to have no one to succeed to the throne. His son, in fact, will not be born for another three years at this point. So the king is concerned for the kingdom. When a king dies in a kingdom, that's a very serious thing. There's no backup unless there is an heir. And not only is that true politically, but, but he is a covenantal king, and so he's concerned, is he not, for the promises of God. God had promised, hadn't he, that he would continue the Davidic dynasty so that the Messiah could arrive. If Hezekiah had died then, there would be no Messiah. If Hezekiah had, not, uh, had died at this point without an heir, then there, the, the line between David and the Messiah would be broken and the promises of God would come to a, an abrupt end right at that point. He was aware of that. So he's not acting selfishly, as some say. He's acting and thinking like a responsible steward of the royal line. And he pours out his grief. Please, O Lord... Remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness. He speaks to God in his prayers and with his tears. He reminds the Lord of his steadfastness, his inner integrity. He had lived his life, Coram Deo, in the face of God. He is not suggesting for one moment that he was a perfect person. Perfection and faithfulness and steadfastness are always relative to us sinners. You, you can say about someone that you know you're just perfect, but you know that's a relative description. Perfect in your eyes, perfect compared to others, not perfect in an absolute sense. And King Hezekiah knows that. He had sought to serve the Lord with his whole heart. Second Chronicles 23, or 32 rather, talks about all that the king had faithfully done. And so he brings this to God, and he prays for his healing. Now you ask, is it appropriate to pray for healing? The Bible encourages us to do so. Does God always answer prayer for healing? By healing us? No, not always. Does God ever answer prayers for healing? 
sometimes. What is the common denominator? Whether it's no or yes, the common denominator is always the will of God. God preserved Daniel in the lion's den to show that he could. God hears Hezekiah's prayer to show that he does hear prayer. God did not spare his only son, but delivered him up to die for us, to demonstrate that his will will be done in the world. Romans 8 says about Christians that Christians groan. They groan in the body. They groan in their circumstances. They, they groan in this present evil world in which they find themselves. That groaning is endemic to what it means to be a Christian this side of glory. When all, we must always be guarding against that teaching that, that, uh, that emphasizes what we call an over-realized eschatology. That is, the eschatos, the last things, are brought forward and we are led to expect now what God has promised for then. So we've always got to be on our guard. God is more likely to answer your prayer for healing grace by giving you sustaining, persevering grace. And at the end of your life, giving you dying grace so that you're able to face death, the last enemy, with confidence and with hope in the promises of God. Well, he's praying to God, and Isaiah has not left the building. And as he's making his way towards the exit, then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The book of Kings tells us, it's much more dramatic actually, in the language it uses, Isaiah was going from Hezekiah and he got told to go back to Hezekiah. So off he goes back to Hezekiah to speak to him. God had heard the king's prayer. And here's a confirmation of what we said earlier. The answer to his prayer is this, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I add, I will add 15 years to your life. Let me say this to everybody here who prays. God hears your prayer and He sees your tears. In fact, the Bible says He collects them in a bottle. He keeps them. He keeps record of them. He keeps note of them. And when you arrive safely home to glory, He will wipe away every tear from your eye. That's what God does. He takes note of your tears. And God, who has His own unchangeable purposes, reveals to Hezekiah what that purpose was. It was to add 15 years to his lifespan. It was alone. It was, it was not in the normal course of events. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. And on this occasion, there will be healing. And if you glance down the passage to verse 21, you'll see how the miracle happens. Isaiah said, Let them make a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. Ever want a letdown for a miracle? There it is, a poultice. 
But that's the, that's the amazing thing, isn't it? That, that this God who made our bodies is able to act directly, as Jesus did often in the miracles of healing he did, or indirectly, through some medical arrangement, as in this case. But healing is always a work of God, whether there are means or no means. It is always a work of God. A leg is broken, it's set by the doctor. The healing process happens, it just happens. Or it maybe it doesn't happen. That is in the hands of God. And so we find God at work. Somebody has written this about the passage. God is as much the Lord of the soothing poultice as He is of the spectacular miracle. Now, having said that God sometimes heals, it's also important to notice that there is a, re a unique reason for this man's healing. You notice the language that God uses here. Why does He spare the king's life? For my sake, he says, and for the sake of my servant, David. That's the second time we have a reference to my servant, David. That's, that's important because that expression is what ties up both halves of the book of Isaiah. The first half is teaching us to expect a Messiah who is a king descended from David. He is the stem from the branch of David. He is the root from the stump of David. He is the son of David as well as the son of God. In the second part of Isaiah, we have this emphasis on, our, on a Messiah who is a servant, a suffering servant, despised and rejected. Here it's brought together. Here is the linkage that binds the whole volume together. He is my servant David. God is saying to this man, I'm healing you not so much because of your faithfulness, but because of my faithfulness. Here is the Lord, the Lord who knows David, the Lord who not only knew David, but knows David. And God is saying to this man, I'm doing this because I plan to do this out of grace towards this man, David, the promise I made to David. You see, David in the Bible is a public figure. It's from David that the Messiah will be descended. And to the descendant of David, it was promised that he would have an eternal kingdom. And that promise concerning the seed of David was a promise concerning the Messiah. Hezekiah is being reminded of his royal roots. David was his forefather, that he will always have a legitimate ruler on David's throne and an heir to the promises that God would be faithful to his word of promise, that that salvation that comes through David's son would find its fulfillment in Christ the Savior, and that God would never let any word of that promise fall to the ground. He would keep that promise. And this intervention was part of his keeping of that promise and his purpose and what we learn here is that God has chosen not only the end, but the means to the end. Not only what He will do, but that He will do it in answer to the prayers of His people. He sets His people a praying, and then He does what He plans to do all the time. But He does it then, knowing that you and I are caught up in the business, that you and I share something in the work. He wants us to walk with Him 
journey with Him, trust in Him, have the benefit of our faith built up and encouraged as we see His plans unfolding in answer to our prayers. Well, verse 27, 21 rather. Verse 21 tells us that Hezekiah had asked for a sign that it would be the way God said it would be. And then in verse 7, we're told what the sign was. Now this Hezekiah asking for a sign and then being told what the sign was reminds us that the, the, there are only two historical vignettes in the book of Isaiah. This is the second of them. The first one concerned his own father Ahaz, who was a very bad king, and now Hezekiah, uh, his son. These two little stories of history you get in the prophecy of Isaiah. And what is characteristic of these two stories actually is the reference to a sign. You have Ahaz, and the prophet comes to him and says, God wants to give you a sign that you're not going to be defeated by the Assyrians. What would you like him to do for you? And you can ask for anything. I mean, God said he'll do it. You, you do that, you can ask for anything. In the heavens above, in the sky, down in the earth beneath, whatever you go, anything you want, he will do it for you. And Ahaz, who was absolutely committed to his unbelief, refused the sight. He didn't want anything to trouble his calm spirit. He was at peace in his unbelief. He didn't want his unbelief upset or disturbed. He refused a sign from God. And he was given a sign. Whether he liked it or not, and the sign that he was given would not happen in his lifetime. He was given a sign of judgment that would happen several centuries later. A virgin would conceive and give birth to a son, and he would be God with us. Emmanuel. But here's Hezekiah, and he doesn't wait to be asked if he wants a sign. He, in his faith, asks for one. He asks for a sign. And this shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing that he's promised. Behold, the same word is in Isaiah chapter 7. The same, the same word, Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back ten steps. And so the sun turned back on the dial the ten steps by which it had declined. Now there's some, there's some uh, technical stuff in terms of the Hebrew here. I think the best explanation is that Ahaz had built a set of steps, and people noticed. It became, it became well known that the sun, you could actually read the movement of the sun from where the shadow fell on these steps that Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, had built. So it was a well-known phenomenon, and the sign was that whereas normally the sun moved in a particular direction as it went down, it would be reversed. That was a pretty spectacular sign. We don't know how it happened. Some refraction of the sun's rays. We're not told how it happened. We're simply told it happened. We ask the question, how can that happen? It's against the laws of nature for that to happen. Well, what are the laws of nature? The laws of nature are just the normal way that God makes the world work from day to day, moment by moment. He has to keep it going. He has to make it work all the time. We call them laws. They're just his normal ways of working. We observe how he normally works. He doesn't have to work that way. 
If he alters, it doesn't mean more power is expelled from God if he does it something a bit differently. He's the same God. It doesn't make, take God any more effort to do what we call a miracle than it does for God to sustain the universe by the word of his power. But we're not allowed to speculate. E.J. Young puts it like this, The sign was a pledge to the fearful yet believing king that God would fulfill the promise of life that he had made and in the deeper sense would be true to the promises of salvation made to David. Let's remember, will we, as we think about this, that God in his ordinary providence makes use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure, as our confession says. Now, what should I learn from this miracle? Well, not necessarily that I need to ask God for miracles, but what it does teach me is this, that when I come to God, there's nothing that I can't talk to Him about or ask Him for. Nothing. As the hymn writer captures it, Come, my soul, thy suit prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He Himself hath bid thee pray. Therefore He will not say thee nay. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such. None can ever ask too much. Do you believe that? Do you believe in prayer? Do you believe in the power of prayer? Do you believe that God has given us this great entree into his presence in which we may bring, as it were, all our pleas before God in the language of C.H. Spurgeon, that we may go up, as it were, to the battlements of heaven and bang against the very walls of heaven and ask God to hear us, not for our sakes, but for God's own name's sake. Do you believe in prayer? Has it got into our hearts and our bellies that prayer does something, that God means to fulfill His purpose in the world through the believing prayers of His people? Hezekiah learned that. No wonder in the previous little section we studied last time, he knows what prayer does, and he prays to God, and it has such a powerful effect in his life. He learned it here. He learned it in this crisis moment. And the other thing we learn from this crisis moment is this. Who could have ever believed that the glad news of verse 5 could emerge from the bad news of verse 1? And it teaches us that the greatest gifts of God come often wrapped in the troubles of this life. Let me give you one illustration before we get back to the text. There was a musician and a composer who was heading for financial disaster. It seemed as if he was lurching from one crisis to another, so much so that his health was failing and he was in debt up to his eyes and facing being put in a debtor's prison. Somebody at that point in his life gave him a commission to compose a work for a benefit concert. He set about the task, rarely leaving his room, barely stopping to eat, never out of the house for three weeks straight, three parts the orchestration, 260 pages of manuscript were finished in 24 days. Georg Friedrich Handel produced The Messiah, and at its premiere, it raised 400 pounds and released 142 men from debtor's prison. One of his biographers said, Messiah has fed the hungry, clothed the naked, 
and fostered the orphan more than any other single musical production in this or in any other country. The point is not that every cloud is a silver lining. The point is that God's kindness often is, lies hidden in a cloud of trouble. Well, we move to the second thing, a sober testimony. I won't take much time in this. Verses 9, you can notice through to 20 are a prayer, a writing, in fact. It's described as of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, after he'd been sick and recovered from his sickness. And he had begun, I think, this composition in the middle of his sickness. He, he emphasizes in verse 10 the, the, the brevity of life. He was only 39 years of age when he was told the news that he was going to die. And uh, he says in verse 10, I said, in the middle of my days I must depart. I'm consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. The brevity of life. He was Frankly, verse 13, overcome with the sense that there might be the reality of judgment beyond death. And he felt the peril of that. He felt he would die, in a sense, verse 17, without hope and with his sin not forgiven. But he was also aware of the grace of God. In verse 14, he describes himself praying like a swallow or a crane. I, I chirp and I moan like a dove. God responds to him in verse 15, What shall I say? Or he responds to God, What shall I say? For he has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. Verse 20, The Lord will save me. Here's a, a note of great joy. Well, we look lastly at the squandered opportunity of verse thir chapter 39. A delegation comes from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, you need to know Babylon is not a major player. It's just a little place at this point. It's, one of the, it's part of the Assyrian Empire. It's been already taken over by the Assyrians. And this guy called Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, should really be a puppet of the king of Assyria. But this guy, Merodach Baladan, he's one of the most flamboyant personalities and rebels of the ancient world, a kind of maverick figure. He, he actually revolted against the king of Assyria twice in his life. In, in his life, the second time, he, he managed to last a bit longer. The first time, he, wasn't, he didn't manage his independence very long before he was reinvaded by the Assyrians. And we don't know when this happened. This visit probably came towards the end of the first period of independence that he was enjoying, and he was looking for people who would be on his side when he sent envoys to visit Jerusalem and try and garner the support of the people of Judah. And here's what we read. Hezekiah welcomed them, that is his envoys, gladly. And he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, the whole armory, all that was found in his storehouse. He showed them the whole lot. I need you to remember this. Here was a moment, you see, for, for Hezekiah. Here was a moment for him to give his testimony to these envoys. I really don't need to get involved in a revolt against the king of Assyria because God's told me they're as good as dead. 
They're never going to invade Jerusalem. They're never going to get any of my riches here in my treasure house here in the city. God's told me that. Here was his opportunity to testify and to witness to the realities of his God. But I think we can assume that Hezekiah at this point is in a very good mood. He is buoyant. He's, he has had a new lease of life. He's got another 15 years to go. He's kind of excited about that. Really, you would be excited about that too. You get a death sentence and then it's withdrawn. God gives you this amazing miracle to show you that he's really serious. The sun that seems moves back and so on. And I think in his good mood, his exuberance, he thought, well, you know, there'd be no harm linking up with others who feel the same way about the Assyrians. We, we could all kind of, we could forge a kind of network here, perhaps. Second Chronicles 32 tells us, in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. And the result was disaster. Here's what Chronicles goes on to say, Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. You see, there's nobody who's got an absolutely clean record. You can be faithful in many areas and, and, and have your weak area. This Man, Hezekiah had done this. Do you know back in chapter 32 of Isaiah? I, I'm not sure we actually spent time looking at the details there, but, but in that chapter, there's a reference made to something that you could go visit, by the way, if you ever go to Jerusalem, to Hezekiah's tunnel that he built in order to get water into the city so that if the city was ever under siege, they would have water and they could survive for a long siege. And that was not a good thing. Isaiah says back there in chapter 22, you saw the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool and you counted the houses of Jerusalem and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made the reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But you did not look to him who did it. It was an act of unbelief. Even Hezekiah had his moment of unbelief where he put his confidence in worldly alliances, human resources, self-confidence. It is, it is a temptation to all of us to trust in other things rather than to trust in God alone. The church of Jesus Christ is running around like a mad thing. I was reading stuff only this week about some churches in the United Kingdom. They're running around like mad things, trying to do whatever they can because they see that nobody's coming to church anymore. And if they just dumb down the messages, if they dumb down the, the worship, if they get rid of the liturgy, if they make it as simple as possible and always meet in theaters or whatever, then people will get converted and then the church won't die. Do you know what it's doing? It's just doing what old Hezekiah did. Well, he wasn't old. He was young, Hezekiah. Just doing the same thing. Not trusting the Lord 
think the Lord's going to let his church down? Do you think the Lord is not going to bless his word? Do you think we've got to do it all for him? He chose those paths. Do you know there was always a haunting thing? My mother used to sing me hymns as a little boy, a little, very little boy. And there were some hymns that really stuck in my mind because they had, they had a kind of haunting tone. The words, tell me the old, old story. When you have cause to fear that this world's empty glory is costing me too dear. When you see me buying into my own press clippings, not that I have any good ones, by the way, they're all negative, so I'm not going to do that. But you know what I'm saying? You get the picture. You start being influenced by the world, it's so easy to be attracted. Hezekiah was attracted by this potential little linking with Baladan of Babylon, even rhymed. What he was doing was he was forgetting the old, old story. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. And this is how, by the way, eventually, Judah is taken into exile in Babylon. Listen to what Isaiah, the prophet, predicts. This sets us up as part two of Isaiah. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house. This is about a hundred and something years ahead in time. All that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. When Hezekiah lost his humble-mindedness, he lost everything. He was not acting on his own. He was a, not a private figure. He was the representative of God's people. And here we have the prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem, the burnt-out ground that Jerusalem and Judea would be. And Isaiah is given, a hundred years before it happened, to see what that Babylon would be the chief instrument God would use. The Babylonians would never forget what they saw in the treasury of Jerusalem, and they would come, and they would take it all back to Babylon. Now, what are the lessons of this? The lessons are that we should never let our heads be turned by the attention and affirmation and affections and attractions of the world. It teaches us that those that lead the church of God, remember Hezekiah is a king, and we don't have any kings in the church of God, at least they shouldn't be kings. But nonetheless, King Jesus, who is the one head and king of the church, has his representatives of authority to rule and lead the, the people of God. That theirs is not an absolute rule, it's, they serve as under-shepherds, but nonetheless, they need to learn that you can do much that is faithful and good for the cause of God and the work of the kingdom. And make a mistake, the trajectory of which will not affect the present generation, but will affect the next generation. 
or the next, or perhaps the next and the next and the next generation, and lead them away from the things of God. In other words, we must always be on guard. But the last thing to say is not only should we be thinking about trajectories, we must be remembering that God goes to all this trouble with this man in order that he might keep his promise. He will not be turned aside from his promise. He will keep his promise. And that leaves me with the last verse to deal with. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Two ways of looking at that. One is, is he being selfish? Is he saying to himself, well, I guess the Lord's being right. But we'll be fine, at least while I'm alive. I, by this, you know, I, I don't have a long to go. After this, I've got, what, 15 years? Excellent. It's okay. That, that's one interpretation. And if that were the right interpretation, this man would be looking at things from a very limited, selfish perspective. We'll be all right. And let other generations look after themselves. Ralph Davis, however, wonders whether these two lines of, these two lines of this verse are actually parallel lines rather than contrast lines. In other words, that the second line spells out why the Lord is good. So the Lord is good because there will be peace and security in my days. In other words, I, he's recognizing the Lord's restraint and mercy in his word that the judgment could have been immediate, but that God is holding back the judgment by grace. Hezekiah was a great man, and he did a great work, and he was a flawed saint. Hezekiah wasn't the Messiah. His son Manasseh would be the worst king Judah ever had. The worst ratfink king that Judah ever had with apologies to anybody who's that name, who are my friends here, or were. Talk to me later. <clears throat> but seriously, he was not a good person, Manasseh. But because of Hezekiah's faithfulness, Messiah was born. There's only one king you can trust, and that is King Jesus, the promised servant of God, the promised royal son, the one who's come to rescue us. And that sets us up for the announcement of the gospel in chapter 40. But we won't go there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the servants of God that you have used in the past. Their story is written for our learning. The church today makes as many mistakes as it made then. We're as easily thrown into disbelief 
now as they were then. And we too need to learn to pray, to be a prayerful, Bible-believing, Spirit-filled community of your people. And we cry to you, Lord, that you would make us that for your praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.